Amen and amen. Whoa, pretty loud there. Amen and amen. How's everyone doing today? Are we good? Good? Who here is loving that fall weather? I mean, come on. Anyone here do what I did? Crack the window open last night, get some cool air while you went? Yeah. Slept like a baby. I get some cool fall air. I can sleep for probably like Rumpelstiltskin, 24 hours for a year. Just amazing. So happy to see you all. Happy to see another red flannel over there on the left. A couple extra red flannels. Uh, tis the season. So with that said, if you are new to the transit, haven't been around for a while, we go through uh, books of the Bible at the transit, and we're continuing today our sermon series in the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles or the app, uh, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Who here enjoyed uh, the, uh, the speaker last week before the nations, Matt Kozowski? That was amazing, right? And I, got, I, was, I was talking with, some, uh, uh, with Justin, actually, his uh, kind of right-hand man over there. And uh, one, it was just cool to see the feedback of how many people are getting plugged in with For the Nations and, uh, and setting up uh, opportunities to serve and all that stuff. So just an awesome blessing that we get to partner with amazing believers doing amazing things, welcoming the sojourner who sojourns among us. So uh, today in Acts uh, 13, 4 through 12, uh, we learn a little bit more about the church at Antioch. And so I spoke on Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and a quick recap to kind of catch us up to speed uh, of where we're at. So in Acts chapter 13, the beginning of the chapter one today, we learned about the church at Antioch. And what we saw last week is, uh, how Joe Workman would put it, is that they were rumbling, all right? Joe Workman calls prayer and worship rumbling. We're going to rumble. We're going to contend. We're going to seek the Lord. And so what we saw last week is that the church at Antioch was unified uh, in their diversity. They were hungry for more of the Lord, and they were yielded to whatever the Lord said. So they were praying. They were fasting. They were worshiping. They were rumbling, contending, seeking after the Lord. And the result of that, it says in the text, is that the Holy Spirit spoke. That as they drew near, James 4, 8, God drew near to them, Hebrews 11, and faith is impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who would seek after God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek them. So the reward of their pursuit of God was God speaks, probably through one of the prophets. We're not sure how he spoke. And what did did he say? Anyone remember what he said? You guys did, just shy. It's all all good. I wouldn't, if a preacher asked me that, I wouldn't open my mouth anyways, either. Um, Why don't I tell you? You're like, hey, like, you're the dude on the the microphone. Why don't I just tell you what they said? Um, The Lord said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And so where our text ended last week is uh, it just got real, real quick. It's prayer and worship night because the Holy Spirit said, these men are my soldiers and I'm sending them off to battle. And so they laid hands on them, they prayed, they fasted some more, and they sent them off. And that's where our text begins, is we're looking at, well, where did they get sent off to? Where did they go? And what we're going to see in Acts 13, this is a really cool turning point in our journey through Acts, is this is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. One of three missionary journeys where Paul, sometimes with Barnabas, sometimes with John Mark, some other people, would travel across the kind of the known world, particularly his first missionary journey. We're going to look at him out through the kind of Mediterranean area, if you will, and uh, is going and advancing the gospel, advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. And where they go first is this island of Cyprus, where actually Barnabas, Barnabas goes, we, don't, we know a lot about Barnabas, but he was from Cyprus. So Barnabas has some homies in Cyprus. We know that there are still some believers in Cyprus who fled the persecution in Acts 11. They're believers there. So their first stop is the island of Cyprus. And what we're going to see, the title of my sermon today is this, is salvation comes to Cyprus. Because what we see in our text today is that a Roman proconsul, a man of great intelligence and authority, who was not actively seeking God, was sought out by God through the sacrificial love and faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas. 
who left their church family, all the comforts and safety and security of Antioch, and they set foot on Cyprus to proclaim the hope of salvation in Christ alone. And the result of that was that this man comes to know Jesus. So uh, three things we're going to be looking at to frame out our time. Then we'll pray and dive in. Uh, We're going to be looking at the cost of love, the fight for love, and the result of love. The cost, the fight, and the result of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beautiful privilege that we get to love others because you first loved us. Thank you for the reminder and worship this morning that Uh, Jesus, your love for us came at a great cost, the highest price that could be paid, the Lamb of God, perfect spotless Lamb, took on our sins, our iniquities on the cross so that we could be cleansed, we could be uh, forgiven, we could be given the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of our peace with God, our assurance of our adoption that we're sons and daughters ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, God. So we come before you with grateful hearts, with mouths full of praise and thanksgiving. We come here uh, lifting our chins up and looking to see where our King is seated, that our King is seated above our sins. He's seated above death and disease. He's seated above any demonic attack that's coming against us. And he reigns in victory over all that because he's shot out of the grave, giving us hope that one day we're gonna be glorified and resurrected and reigning with him for all of eternity. So thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. May this this be so much more than a a three-point sermon with some application, God. May you come, Holy Spirit, and breathe life onto our hearts, God. Where there's hardness, Holy Spirit, come and soften that hardness. Where there's doubt, give us belief and faith, God. Where we're worn down and weary, revive us, refresh our souls. Fill us afresh with your spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and magnify Jesus and that you would increase in our lives and I would decrease. And we pray this in your name, amen. First thing we're gonna be looking at is the cost of love. Uh, Acts 13, verse four, diving in, buckle up, here we go. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, real quick, who sent them out? Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at not Salamis, Salamis, they, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, that's a weird place to stop. We're going to stop right there, okay? So real quick, it's easy for us to gloss over. We got a couple verses, but we got four towns named, four places named. We have no idea what this means in the, if we're not looking at a map. So we're going to pull up a map real quick, and I'm going to explain kind of what's happening here. Uh, you know, pull it up on the live stream, and I'll just share it from my notes because it's kind of faded up here. So if you look at the right side of the map, you see Antioch. 16 miles west is the port of Antioch called Seleucia. And this is where uh, we see Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark would have set sail. They would have embarked on their journey on a sailboat. Now what happened there for sure was key leaders and friends and family would have met them at that port, at that dock, if you will. They would have been weeping. They would have been praying on the shore on that dock as they sent them out, not knowing, by the way, Paul's first missionary journey lasted about a year and a half. So they don't know if they're going to see these people again. They're going to places they've never been. Uh, There's no like, hey, text me when you land if you catch my drift. They're not busting champagne on a cruise ship as they're going to go toward the Mediterranean, right? That's not what they're doing. It's a battleship going into enemy territory. There's a cost involved. 
Saul and Barnabas and John Mark, they're leaving comfort. They're leaving security. They're leaving friends. They're leaving a thriving church. Two of the key leaders during the height of the momentum of Antioch, God tells them to go. And so they go. So they, so they set sail. And they sail 130 miles westbound to Salamis. And once they land there, what do they do? They immediately go to the synagogues. Why do they go to the synagogues? Because the, the Hebrews shared the same God and the same scriptures, right? So of course, you go to the Jew first. This is what we see in Romans. Paul talks about to the Jew first and then to the Gentile because they would go and Paul, knowing his background, would go and reason with them from the Old Testament scriptures about the messianic promises. And say, hey, the same Lord promised this through the line of David, a coming king would come. The king has come. His name is Jesus. And he's conquered actually our greatest enemy, sin, death, the devil. To mark the kingdom of God is at hand. Look and see. And, and so, they, so they go, they go uh, to the Jew first. They go to the synagogues. And then from Salamis, after there, it says they travel through the whole island, most likely on foot. No, they didn't rent any of those fancy scooters, you know, that you can rent. You, you know, ever seen those in the cities? You know, you bust those out. They rent scooters. Didn't call an Uber. Most likely a uh, hard, rough travel through the whole land, preaching the gospel loving people that have not, have, aren't seeking after God, and they end up in Paphos, the capital of Cyprus. That's a 100-mile journey right there. A 100-mile journey, okay? And so the reason I want to hone in here on this is that we're not just looking at their travel plans, right? We're not just saying, oh, they went here, and then they went here. No, 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 that's not what we're looking at. This map doesn't just lay out their travel plans. It shows their intentional, costly sacrificial, time-consuming, life-threatening pursuit of those that don't know Jesus. That all these lines on the map is, 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 is the lines of the good shepherd seeking and saving that which is lost. Their feet going where the feet of Jesus would go if he was in their shoes because it was Jesus who told them to go. And so they're going, they're praying as they're walking mile after grueling mile. Jesus, give us opportunity. Jesus, give us favor. Jesus, open up doors. They're praying and they're, and they're loving and they're shepherding and they're sharing and they're seeking after the lost. And I think for us, sometimes we miss, we miss uh, out on this idea that there's actually suffering involved. There's a cost involved. There's trials, trials involved in following Jesus. Like anyone here enjoy road trips? Like, like anyone here just, just out of fun love to travel like 20 hours in a car? No, right? Some of you raise your hand and maybe, okay, anyways. But what about the beach? Who here likes going to the Outer Banks? Outer Banks, yes. I love the Outer Banks, okay? So I grew up going to the Outer Banks. Jen grew up going to the Outer Banks. We love the Outer Banks, okay? And to get to the Outer Banks from my house without traffic takes about six hours, okay? With traffic and with kids, it takes about 18 hours, Okay? <laughs> Not an exaggeration, okay? 30 minutes into the drive, uh, someone's got to take a potty break. And I'm like, I'm not even at Stafford yet on 95, okay? And the potty break is needed for me because I'm drinking all the coffee. Anyways, um, so, so what goes into preparing a road trip in the 21st century? Okay, well, there's a cost involved. How much gas is it going to take? Where are we going to stop for food? How much money do I need for my Starbucks run, you know? Every, every 15 miles, there's a Starbucks. I gotta get, I gotta get a refill, right? Uh, uh, there, there's cost involved. There's planning. What routes are we going to take? What routes are we going to retake because this route is closed because 95 is the devil's highway, by the way. Sorry, Jen. I used to date Jen, uh, uh, and she was in Richmond at the time, and I had to travel north and south on 95, and oh my gosh, holy smokes. I mean, I think people think in the left lane that 95 is the speed limit, and for some reason, it's a two-lane road, and then if you drive in the right lane, they think it's 25 miles per hour. So you have two options, 95 miles an hour, 25. Anyways, okay, I digress. Um, 
So there's a cost involved, but there's not only a cost involved, there's a threat of safety, right? The second you get on the highway, you could be sideswiped. You know, you're like, who knows what could happen? There's a threat to safety, anxiety, stress, so on and so forth. Unexpected twists and turns, stress and anxiety. But why would the Mudgetville family endure all that? Why would we get ahead? Why would we plan this out six months in advance, put a bunch of money down, get all the kids loaded up? We're packing for five weeks to get all of our stuff lined up, you know, all that. Why would we do that? Why would we endure that trial? Why would we endure that suffering? Because, because we love what awaits us on the other side. We love what awaits us on the other side of that trial. And so the first century travel that these men were enduring, the church at Antioch pulling their resources together, they got a map out, they're planning, they're taking time, they're not binge watching the latest series on Netflix, they're strategically, prayerfully thinking where God wants them to go with the hope of the gospel. Plan Cyprus first, you got homies there, that'll be a good fresh start, and then we'll go, you know, duck northbound over here, and then loop back around, all that stuff. They're praying, they're getting funds, they're buying tickets, uh, they're, 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 they're thinking about lodging, all that stuff in the first century. But as they travel, there's danger involved. As you travel by boat, there's no, there's no Coast Guard to scoop you up, there's no helicopter, to, 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 you know, to like lower down a basket if you're shipwrecked. Your, your, hope, is, your hope is like a wooden plank and that you, you, you drift to shore right? And then as you're traveling through 100 miles westbound through the island of Cyprus, which probably you've never traveled before, you don't know which parts of town are bad. You don't know where the robbers hang out. You don't know where you're going to rest your head that night. And this is what Paul explains about what he endured in his missionary journeys in 2 Corinthians 11, 25 through, 40, to, to 28, 25 through 28. By the way, anyone here who, who would posit about the prosperity gospel, that God's after your wealth and your health, that is, that is just not true to the scriptures. God is after us being a people of love who do what Christ did, who sacrificed himself so that others can live. And this is what Paul did. On the other side of Paul's sacrifice, him dying to himself, being shipwrecked and beaten, salvation came to us. And this is what he says. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. A night and a day. Poor Paul. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That would terrify. I'm a terrified of sharks, man. I would be, I have my feet above water. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, skipping meals for the lost, often without food, in cold and exposure, shivering for the lost, no roof over his head, and apart from other things, there's daily pressure on me because Paul loved the church and the churches that he planted. We were to ask again, well, why would they endure all of this? Why do the Mudgerzos endure the hardships of travel in the 21st century? Why did they endure these hardships? Because they loved it was on the other side of their death to themselves because life everlasting came to Cyprus. And listen, the only way it's possible for these men, Saul and Barnabas and John Mark, to leave the comforts and the security of Antioch, their home church, they got their friends, they got their community groups, you know, they got, they got everything there. The only way that's possible is when the love of Jesus and the compassion for those who don't know Jesus supersedes their love of comfort and security supersedes their love of comfort and security. Because if we're, if we're rumbling on a Friday night, we have a PW night, prayer and worship night, and the Holy Spirit just marks you and says, I set you apart. You're going to this nation. You're gonna wrestle internally with that challenge of the American dream or, or, or people on the other side of my yes, maybe an unreached people group who don't know Jesus yet that he's calling me to. 
And it's a, it's a battle of love. It's a battle of love. And these men had so much love for Jesus and love for the lost that they left it all behind. So the first thing we, this is what I'm honing in on. The first thing we see here is everything I shared about that map and everything that Paul said about toil and hardship and suffering and shipwrecks and trials, that's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. It's death. It's laying aside our interests and putting the interests of others above our own. Death to ourselves, death to our comfort, death to ourselves. Love without sacrifice is not love. It's not love. And so our mantra as Christians is my precious Savior died so that I might live. And so now let me live my life so that I die so that others might live. So that means that the perpetual ethos of the Christian life is denying yourself and dying to yourself so that others can live on the other side of your death. Because that's how life came to us was Christ going alone and dying so that we could be resurrected. And that's how we're to live our lives. And simply put, I just think we can't reach the lost, those outside the four walls of the church without sacrifice, without a cost. I think we have this false notion that if we simply do nothing, that people will get saved and come to know Jesus, that if we do nothing, this lost, broken, hurting, dying world will, will mend itself together when we're sitting on the hope of the gospel. Not, not do, I think we just have that false notion. And yes, God is sovereign. And yes, God's plan A for the gospel going to the ends of the earth and, and, and enacting his sovereign plan and purposes is through his yielded church. You and me being his hands and feet and going, going. And so instead of this idea of us kind of doing nothing and people will get saved and, and experience and encounter the love of Jesus for all of eternity. Here's what Paul's attitude, 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23. I have become all things to all people that, watch this, that by all means I might save some. And why does he do it? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in his blessings. And I had this thought cross my mind, man, if I could get a hold of the apostle Paul's cell phone, I could learn a lot about that man, right? Not that they had cell phones back then, but like imagine he had like the iPhone one in the first century, okay? And you got a hold of his phone and you're kind of snooping around. And you're like, what's on Paul's calendar? You know what would be on Paul's calendar? He'd be flooded, flooded with appointments, travel plans, appointments for what? To see the world and, and, and experience different cultures? No, to go save the lost, to go love the world with the hope of Jesus. If you were to look at his, his banking app, and you're like, hey, hey, Barnabas, what's his pin again? Okay, boom, boom, boom. Okay, let me punch that in. Let me see how much money is coming in and where's the money going out. That dude probably had a giant goose egg in his bank account. Why? But he probably had a ton of support coming in because of all the needs of the churches. He was just following it. As God had been radically generous to this murderer of Christians, Saul here was a murderer of Christians. And when Christ manifested his presence, he didn't get Thanos and turn into dust. He experienced grace. And that grace was far more powerful than judgment to change the entire course of his life and the entire course of history. Shown radical, undeserved love and grace. And so he's probably radically generous with his money because he served a radically generous God. A radically generous God who gave him grace, who gave him the gift of his son crushed on the cross when he didn't even deserve that in the midst of his sins. And if you were to look at Man, let me see his Google map history. Let me trace his steps. Let me see where he went. Tell you, you can learn a lot about yourself and what we prioritize and what we're pursuing and what we're seeking after by your Google maps history. 
man, Paul would be all over the place, right? We just see it over here. And then his second missionary journey, and then his third missionary journey. And so all that to say is this, and I, and I was wrestling with this as I was preparing this sermon. I sit under this uh, uh, just as much as I'm preaching it. This is, this is convicting to me, challenging to me. Church, what's our calendar filled up with? What's our money going towards? What are we seeking and chasing after via our Google map history? What does our banking app reveal about what we value and treasure the most? And if I were to ask us, what is your Cyprus? What are the networks or the neighbors that God has called you to reach? To, to, to answer that question, it's pretty simple. Where's the majority of your time spent outside of the church? That's your Cyprus. That's where God's calling you to. And he might, he might very well put a call on you to us, to us, to Cyprus. You should go for the glory of Jesus. But it's not enough just to say, what's your Cyprus? This is a question I want to ask us. How can we prayerfully start using our resources of planning and time and and money to love and serve the people in our Cyprus that God has called us to reach? Are the lost getting on our calendar? Are we formatting our budget, inviting our kids into that, and saying, here's the percentage of money we're going to commit to, to radical hospitality? Not just for the church. Yeah, invite your brothers and sisters over in Christ. Before, before get your, just get them in there, man, and bless the socks off of them. Right? What would that look like? What if, what if there's a reframing from the American dream that tells us to go, to go, to go, to achieve, to achieve, to achieve, to build our kingdom, build our kingdom. We stop, we slow down and say, what is the chief end of my life? What am I here for? And before any financial advisor, before any real estate, nothing against these guys, I've got many friends who are this, before they tell you what to do, we slow down. In Matthew 6, we seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, and these things will be added unto you. You be about my kingdom, I'll take care of yours. I got you fed. You feed my sheep, Peter, and I'll feed you until your earthly assignment is over. And by the way, you'll be crucified upside down. And you'll choose that because you don't think you're worthy to be crucified the way your Savior was. Seek first his kingdom. What would that look like? And what if on the other end, we make some decisions today. I make some decisions with my family and my money. It's not legalism. Just going before the Lord, not guilt. Just going before the Lord and we have an audit. We got maybe like a family emergency meeting. We're saying, where's our money going? What's on our calendar? And is this of eternal significance? And what if on the other end of us, by the power of the spirit, the grace of God, we start making some decisions to reorient, just shift the culture of our church, shift the culture of our community groups, shift the culture of our families, and we start getting hungry for the lost. We start loving what Jesus loved. There's three, I was at a conference last week. There's three questions when the speaker said, he says, what? He asks himself every day, what is Jesus up to? Where is he going? And am I going with him? What is Jesus up to? Where does Jesus want to go? He's made it clear in his word. Where does Jesus want to go? Where does Jesus want to take this church? My life, my family, and three, am I going with him? Am I going with him? So we got to move on here. Just preached a whole sermon, and I got like, okay, here we go. All right, uh, all that to say, all that to say, 
Love for the lost came at a huge cost for Paul and Barnabas. And not if, but when opposition came against them, that love had to be fought for as well. And this is what we see, the fight for love, verses 6 through 11. Buckle up, this gets kind of weird. Uh, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alamus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you, <laughs> hard to say, sorry, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now imagine with me for a second that you're a church member at the church at Antioch and you are financially supporting your church missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, and you get their weekly update emails, their monthly update emails of what they're up to on the island of Cyprus. And this passage is their update. Like, oh, cool, they went to Salamis, they landed safely, they traveled, I don't really know here much, here's one story. Here's the one story they share. And all of a sudden you go, hey, honey, am I reading this correctly? Let me know, is this a typo? Come here and see this. (laughs) Paul here, instead of healing the blind, blinds a dude that can totally see just fine. Right? Honey, is this a typo? He blinded a dude that could see. Like what scripture teaches us is that usually the, kingdom, the way the kingdom advances is that like the blind will receive their sight and you'll pray for them and they'll see. And the opposite happens. And it was Paul and it was the Holy Spirit. And then you're thinking, am I financially liable for the lawsuit that's gonna come from like blinding this dude? Uh, if, that, if you don't think that's weird, imagine trying to preach this. Okay. So it begs the question, what in the world is happening here? What's happening here? This doesn't make any sense. It's hard for us in our 21st century mindset uh, to figure this out. So a quick recap, Paul and Barnabas, they're in the city square, probably preaching the gospel. Word spreads somehow about what they're sharing to the proconsul. Sergius Paul is probably the, uh, the governor of the city of Paphos, a man of intelligence and a man of authority. He's like, hey, I, want to, I summon these guys. I want them in my courts and I want to hear what they're talking about, Okay. So he summons them, and all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas have this amazing opportunity. They're standing in front of a Roman proconsul, just one, and they get to articulate the gospel to him. It's amazing, okay? But then we see that there's some conflict, and we're introduced to this guy named Bar-Jesus, who's described as a Jewish false prophet who's a magician. And what we know about this guy is he's actively at work opposing their preaching of the gospel to, uh, to his proconsul, to his right-hand man. And... Um, the image I get is like something from Lord of the Rings, right? Um, you get this like, uh, like the Spargy's kind of like the hunched over pale dude who's got, who like for some reason does this with his hands and he's like leaning over to like the, the proconsul, like, do you really believe this? Like, do you ever believe a guy could raise from the dead? You know, just, just whispering in the, in the proconsul's ear, just like a creepy dude. Some of you see, man, he wears me out, right? That's kind of the picture I get, this hunched over creepy dude leaning over, whispering lies, interrupting Paul and all this stuff. And it begs the question, why in the world would this magician actively oppose Paul and Barnabas? Why would he be so fired up about opposing them? And a lot of uh, scholars would say, oh, because his pride was involved, his money was involved. He knew that if he came to know Jesus, he'd lose his job. Also, that very well might be it. But I think the text actually tells us what's at play here based off what the Holy Spirit through Paul says. He says, you're a son of the devil. 
And this sounds crazy. We as Christians, we believe, and if, if you're a Christian here today, let me just remind you, that we believe that there's an unseen realm. We believe that the natural is not all there is. We believe that there's something beyond the curtain. There's something beyond the veil. There's a supernatural realm. And in that realm, there's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Kingdom of God, King Jesus, heavenly host, uh, kingdom of darkness, Satan, uh, a different kind of heavenly host, a hellish host of demons that have infiltrated the world. They hate God, they hate God's people, and they're doing everything they can to destroy God's work. Okay, so we believe that in the unseen. And the way I, what we know about first century magicians, I gave a sermon on this in Acts 8. I'm skipping over my notes because I'm running out of time. Um, in Acts 8, we know a whole lot about magicians. They were sorcerers. The, this creepy guy leaning over and whispering all these lies wasn't trying to pull bunnies out of hats and like pick a card, any card, pro console, you know, all that stuff. That's not what, what was at play. No, what this magician was doing was he was actually uh, through the magic dark arts. This is, this is historical and extra, but like this is, you can go like read first century documents of, witchcraft sorcery documents. They would do incantations. Uh, they would uh, cast spells upon people of cursing or blessing. They would uh, seek demonic guidance for revelation and all that stuff. And this proconsul was a man of intelligence, okay? And, uh, uh, and because he was a man of intelligence, he probably knew the reason this guy was at his right hand is because he was probably really accurate. He, he was, uh, the, the magician was the proconsul's like Google search engine. Hey man, can you tell, can you go into the spiritual realm and tell me like what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks or, you know, put a hex on this person, all that stuff. And he'd go do it and actually work. Uh, it's mostly what we see. I mean, the real power, there's real power with demonic stuff in the first century and there's still real power today. That's still happening today. It absolutely is still happening today. Um, and I don't think this man is worried about losing his career. I think what's happening is this guy's actually demonized. This magician is actually demonized. You can't roll with demons like this without getting some company. So I think he's demonized, and I think his demons are frankly just going crazy. They're in full panic mode because Paul and Barnabas, filled with the Spirit of God, just walked into the room. And they're preaching the gospel, and they're panicking. Why, do I, why would I say that? Because that's what Scripture teaches us in, in the Gospels and in Acts, is that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus would enter, whenever his presence would come, demons would go berserko, right? They'd start manifesting in the synagogue, outside the synagogue. People would throw themselves at his feet and these demons would beg for mercy at the feet of Jesus. And they'd say, what do you have to do with us, son of the most high God, if you come here to torment us, right? They just go full panic, they just go full panic mode. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is here. So Paul and Barnabas come and the, I think these things start, it's stirring stuff up and there's opposition. This is what N.T. Wright says about our text. There is no advance for the gospel without opposition. Indeed, so clear is this truth that sometimes, paradoxically, it's only when an apparent disaster threatens, when the church is suddenly up against confrontation and has to pray its way through, that you can be quite sure you're on the right track. On this occasion, the gospel was invading territory, which was under enemy occupation, and the enemy was determined to fight back, and the enemy in question was the power of magic. That's N.T. Wright saying. He's like, yeah, it's demonic. It was a clash of, of powers. And what I want to highlight is this, is often in our love for others as the church, as we kind of press into uh, inviting neighbors over or talking to coworkers about Jesus, when we face opposition, we think that means that we're heading in the wrong direction. When in fact, what if opposition means we're heading in the exact right direction? And we need to learn a little bit about some gospel grit, some gospel love, a love that fights, a love that contends, a love that labors, a love that's willing to be shipwrecked three times in stone, but to still get your feet on the ground when you get off the, the hospital mat and keep going. For the love of Jesus and the love of the lost, opposition might be if you're here and you're wearied and you're burdened and you're tired, tired out, it very well might be because you're going in the right direction. 
And you're, you're fighting, you're contending. For those that don't know Jesus, you're contending for your kids. You're doing the great work of the kingdom. And so all to say the demonic was the inspiration behind this magician's opposition to the gospel. And that's why we see the Holy Spirit fill Paul. It wasn't Paul who said this, by the way. So, so the application can't be if somebody opposes you when you're sharing your faith with somebody, you can just be like, and you're blinded, you know? Don't do that. It's not gonna happen. It's not, you don't do that. That's not the application, okay? This is like a one-time, very rare thing that happened. The Holy Spirit fills Paul and says this, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteous, righteousness, full of deceit, villainy, stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit himself blinds him. And that was the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I had enough. Had enough. Boom, clash of powers. We're gonna show that Jesus is, is uh, more powerful than any demonic power that could come against him. And why the harshness, right? In the 21st century, it's real. <laughs> when we're handing out participation awards for anyone who just steps on the field, this is very hard to, for us to realize. Why the harshness, Holy Spirit? Why would you temporarily blind someone? Why would you do that? Two things. One, there's a whole lot at stake in this interchange. There's a whole lot at stake. The pro-council's eternal salvation is at stake. The stakes are high, okay? So if, I, if I'm up here, for example, and boom, I just I hit the floor, okay? I hit the floor and you're like, holy smokes, what just happened? And I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened, but you come up and I ain't got no pulse, flatlined. And then one of you special forces medics comes over here and just, you know, you're trying to, to resuscitate me, right? You know, like, please do that. Like Tyler, if that ever happens, like, please come and do that, by the way. <laughs> and then for some odd reason, someone comes and sees what's happening and they're trying to get the dude off me, Right? And they're punching him, they're pulling his hair, and, and they're doing everything they can to kick him off me as he's trying to get me back to life. Now, from the dude that's flatlined on the floor, from my perspective, would you please use physical force to get that dude off so that I can, so that I can be resurrected and brought to new life? The Holy Spirit through Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, they got CPR, man. They're, they're pressing, oh man, we're close. We can feel the presence coming. And then someone's trying to fight them. Tooth and nail, tooth and nail to keep this guy bound forever, eternally separated from God because the devil had him. The devil had him, the devil's about to lose him. And, and I'll tell you what, man, when you press into salvations and when you press into deliverance ministry, those jokers, they don't go down without a fight. They don't go down without a fight, okay? And so these dudes are fighting. So that's one, a lot's at stake here. And, 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 and the, the, the Lord in his grace, I think, the second thing, as I think it was God's grace to this magician that he blinded him. I think his temporary blindness was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to this man. Here's why. What do we know about Saul? What happened to Saul of Tarsus? He was, he, Jesus manifested his presence. He lost his sight for days and, uh, and his life was forever changed, right? He came to know Jesus. That was his opportunity to repent to start thinking through in his blindness when he can't see, he's not so sure or anything, to give his life to Jesus. And the bottom line is this, is Bar Jesus knew better. He was Jewish. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. He knew all the texts about uh, God uh, saying, do not commit sorcery. Do not even, don't, don't go to any, anyone who's a sorcerer or don't be in a witchcraft, all that stuff, all those verses. And yet this Jewish false prophet was walking in willful unrepentance, dancing with the devil. And what the Lord did to him in this moment was to show him that he meant business. And sometimes it's God's grace to us because the only way God can get our attention sometimes is through tough love. 
is through tough love. And so there's a, a, an infamous story from my childhood that doesn't involve me. That's why I get to share. It's awesome. One of my sisters, I won't name who, there's a rule in our house. There's a rule in our house growing up. You have friends over, no closed doors. Doors got to be open, right? For obvious reasons. Uh, if you have friends over, doors are open. And uh, <clears throat> my friend, uh, my sister had, I think it was uh, uh, one of her girlfriends over and two guy friends over and uh, nothing crazy was going on, but the door was shut, okay? And my dad, at uh, the, the prime of his police officer career was really into bodybuilding, was, was a you know, pretty stacked dude. And, um, and so he comes from the garage, I think that as the story goes, he was working out, he's pumping iron and uh, opens the door. And when he opens the door that was not supposed to be closed, but was closed, he sees uh, one of the guys push over his daughter and she falls on the ground. And what, this, is, this is when you have authority. This is awesome. You don't, my dad didn't say a word this entire story, this entire incident. He opens the door. He sees what transpires, kind of looks around, goes back to the garage, gets a hammer, flathead screwdriver, goes to the, comes back to the door hinges, one pin, two pins, and the third pin couldn't come out. As the story goes, I'm starting to think that he intentionally left that pin in there by, because he wanted to manifest his power and send a message. <laughs> so that third, that third hinge wouldn't come off. And so what does he do? He said, oh, it doesn't work. No, he takes the door and he, bah, bah, boom, just rips the door off the hinges and walks away. And that was it. It was amazing. Yeah. And then the two little junior, like 12-year-old boys go, I got to go. And they like, you know, they just, like, that's awesome, man. That's, that's authority right there. Didn't say a word. Authority. And, and what's, what's being communicated in that? Hey, do, hey, precious daughter whom I love, this command is for your good. Otherwise, I wouldn't give it to you. This command is for your benefit. And I clearly and specifically have laid this out to you. And I want you to know the severity of not listening to me because I know best. I'm your dad. I know best. You're under my authority the severity of what can happen if you don't listen to me, but also to the, I, you need to know how serious I am about this. How serious I am about this. So instead of anything, go bam, manifest his power. And then there's a temporary, temporary, I mean, he had to go to Home Depot, fix it all, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but a temporary wounding for the sake of healing, for the sake of repentance, that for the time being, hey, you want to shut this door and keep this door shut? Where now you're not going to have that option anymore. And bar Jesus, the magician, you want to practice your, your, your I'm going to take your sight. You're not going to practice it anymore. I'm giving you this opportunity to repent, to know the seriousness of your sin. You're rolling with demons and you need to repent. You need to repent. It's beautiful. It's God's love. It's tough love to this guy who very well, I would assume, came to salvation. And Galatians 3 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We might be asking, what does it mean to mock God? Mocking God, returning to the illustration means this. It means, I know God has told me to open the door and I'm gonna keep it shut. I'm gonna keep it shut for how long I want and, I, and I'm gonna keep it shut and my dad's not gonna do anything about it. He's never gonna open the door. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm gonna keep it shut. And God in his grace to us will send warning after warning if we don't repent to repent because surely he doesn't wanna to have to go to tough love. He wants us to repent and walk in obedience. But there comes a time in our life when he has to rip the door off the hinges to finally get it, get, give us the message that we need to get, to rip the door off the hinges. And listen, for some of us here, if we've been walking in darkness, we've been walking in secrecy, uh, we've been mocking God, that's a dangerous position to be in. God loves you, but he will not be mocked. 
I can't get on the roof of this building and mock gravity and say I can jump off and, and break the law of gravity. No, I break myself on God's laws. I break myself under the law of gravity. So today is an opportunity, a precious opportunity for us to repent. And this is what Isaiah 55, six through seven says about God's heart for those who find themselves in sin. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the compassion of God. Don't shut the door. Let me in. Let my presence in into all the dark recesses of your heart. Let me come in and heal and mend up what is broken. Because as long as that door is shut, you're holding the hand of the devil rather than taking my outstretched hand of repentance. And so returning to our text on the other side of costly love and a love that when when faces opposition still fights and contends comes salvation to this Roman proconsul. And I'll wrap up with this. And band, you can come on stage. We see the result of love in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. And when he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There came a day in this man's life, minding his own business, not seeking after the Lord, being a pagan through and through, just being a pagan, doing what you do. And there came a moment in his day where these two men from Antioch walked into his courts with the hope of Jesus, sacrificing safety and money and their time to preach the precious salvation that has been entrusted to them. And on that day for that proconsul, absolutely everything changed. Sins washed white as snow, past no longer holding him in bondage, filled with the precious Holy Spirit of God. When you're filled with the Spirit, you have love, you have joy, you have peace. You finally understand why you were created, why you exist rather than not existing, to know the living God. He has the hope of everlasting communion and fellowship with the living God as his inheritance forever. There came a day in his life where everything changed. And it's easy for us, as I wrap up this text, it's easy for us to venerate Saul, Paul, and Barnabas, and John Mark. Look at the love. Look at the sacrifice and simply put, yeah, it's amazing. And we want to honor that. But at the end of the day, they weren't looking and comparing to the church. They were looking to what Jesus had done for them. And they were simply, what they did for this proconsul was simply what Jesus Christ had already done for them. Let's talk about, let's talk about Saul. There came a day in his life where everything changed because the king of the universe, a just judge appeared to him as he, as Saul, was on his way to murder and arrest and to persecute people who loved Jesus. And on that road to Damascus, Jesus in his grace appeared to him. Jesus in his grace gave him a little tough love, blinded him, but saved him. And, when, and some of you in your life, if you've ever been caught red-handed, caught red-handed knowing that, that, that before pure holiness, a holy God, that you have nothing to say in your defense for your actions. And instead of judgment, instead of a lightning bolt that comes, Jesus extends grace. He extends mercy. Jesus seeks after us. That's the hope of the gospel. Philippians 2, he left his throne, took on the form of flesh, got calluses on his feet, dirt on his feet, chasing after, pursuing us. And then that led ultimately to where his ultimate pursuit of us would go to the nail scarred feet that he would get on the cross, on the cross 
where because of our sins that put him there, he would die in our place, in our place, so that all of our iniquities, all our past mistakes, no matter how deep and how dark they go, could be washed, could be nailed to the cross, could be forgiven, remembered no more. And we could receive peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that God created you to know. And it's the peace of fellowship with him. Fellowship of his spirit forever. Communion with God, the very reason you exist. And so today is a a day of repentance and salvation for us. Maybe you're here today and you never experienced the peace that Jesus can bring you and the beautiful heartbeat of our Savior who sought after us in love and took on our cross for our sins is this, as he invites you to come just as you are. So whether you're here today and a Christian or not a Christian, but you're coming, man, you're just, you're, you're filled with guilt and condemnation for how you've been living. God will abundantly pardon. God will abundantly pardon. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll fill you with his spirit, give you a new life, make you a new creation, give your life to him. Put your trust in his lordship over all things and dethrone yourself because Jesus gives us this promise. He who loses his life for my sake will truly find it because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so for this Roman proconsul, there came a day in his life where he met Jesus and everything changed, but that was because there came a day in Saul's life where he met Jesus. A murderer met the gracious king of the universe who radically changed his life. And listen, this I want to conclude with, the greatest privilege of our life, Christian, the greatest privilege of our life is to simply do for others what Jesus Christ has done for us. Oh, but they don't deserve it. Do we deserve it? Oh, but they're not seeking after God. They're opposing God. Were we seeking after God? Was Saul seeking after God? The greatest privilege, the greatest honor is Christ has loved me. Now let me die and go love others. Let me conclude with this verse and we'll sing one last song. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only precious son into the world that those who would die without him eternally might live through him everlasting. This is love, not that we loved him or wanted anything to do with him, but that he loved us and came running for us, came running for us on the cross and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now the response, dear friends, the redeemed, the forgiven, the adopted, Since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Bless your name, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Don't hold our trespasses against us. We couldn't stand before you if you did. All the regrets, all the mistakes, the dancing with the devil himself. Who can stand before a holy God? And yet you came and died 
so that would no longer have any claim on our life. No say, no voices of shame and condemnation. There is no guilt for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 says. No more condemnation, Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So thank you, God. We rest in the goodness of your gospel, God. Who are we? We were not worthy in our sins to be pursued, and yet you sought after us, and so may we repent today of ways our backs are turned towards you or towards the lost, and may we turn to you, a Savior who has open arms, is inviting us to come and to take his hand and to go where you're going because where you are is where we want to go, Jesus. So lead us and guide us. Give us your heart for the lost, God. Give us your heart for those outside the church. And would you give us opportunities this week to just speak, not just the, the, the four spiritual laws, but to speak about what our real Savior, our living Savior has done in transforming our lives, God. And may salvation come to our neighbors. May salvation come to our family members. May salvation come to our neighborhood. May your glorious gospel go to the nations in and through us. We pray for the glory of your name. And all God's people say, amen.